as we look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. As we've been looking at Hebrews the past several months, we've been seeing how it was written by an author that we don't know, but who knew his audience well, and who understood that these believers in the early decades of Christianity uh, were struggling, struggling under persecution and under the difficulty of following Christ, and were tempted, many of them, to return to the Judaism out of which they had come, a cultural and religious safe place for them in order to flee persecution. And the author of Hebrews writes to warn them, to encourage them, to exhort them, to admonish them, and to say, don't do it. Jesus is far greater than any other refuge, any other salvation, anything else that you would look to. And we see now how he continues that message in Hebrews chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, by which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, the hit Broadway musical Hamilton came out and it explored the tension between Secretary of the Treasury Alex, Alexander Hamilton, who through hustle and hard work and skill uh, made his way into the inner circles of, of Washington politics. Actually, it wasn't even Washington. It was national politics in New York at the time in the late 1700s. And the tension between him and Aaron Burr who desired the same things, the same access, the same influence, the same power, but found himself kind of blocked and stymied it at every turn. And there's one scene where, where Alexander Hamilton is being invited into a private meeting. 
with, with Jefferson and Madison to discuss some significant things. And Alexander Burr is, is left with the door closed in his face because he's not invited into the meeting. And he sings a song that kind of exposes a lot of his motivation. He says how he wants to be in the room where it happens. This idea that important things are going on that we're not privy to, we don't see them, and yet they have a profound effect on us and they impact our lives very greatly. And Burr wants to know what's going on behind closed doors? What's going on in the room where things happen? And the author of Hebrews is kind of giving us a look behind the door into the temple, into the holy place where the most significant things happen. And he describes the architecture of the tabernacle, which is the tent. It's the same word. The, the tabernacle that God designed and gave to Moses to build in the desert so that his people could worship him in the way he prescribed. And, and our author even says that this, this whole setup is symbolic for the present age. It's a symbol of something greater, of a, of a of heavenly reality. But what goes on in there, nevertheless, communicates some very significant things. And so the author of Hebrews pulls back the veil, the curtain, he opens the door, he gives us a peek inside and describes what's going on in the room where things happen. What's happening in the holy place that has an effect on us? And what does that teach us about our salvation? So in verse 1, he says the first covenant had two things, regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And he's going to explore those for us. And as he does, we're going to learn about the place of our redemption. We're going to learn about the process of our redemption. And then ultimately, we're going to see the purpose of our redemption. And the reason that he does this and, and, and goes into detail describing the, the, the architecture and geography of redemption and the, the ritual process by which it was carried out under the Old Covenant, his purpose in doing that is not just to satisfy curiosity or to give you a bit of theological trivia, but rather to show us what was acted out in the tabernacle was teaching us about how we would be saved. I, I kind of at the last minute on the fly came up with a, an illustration last week that a lot of you came to me and said really resonated and helped you understand the relationship between the old and the new covenant. And what I said was, you know, the, if, if we're thinking of movies... Yeah, the New Covenant is not a sequel and it's not a reboot. It's the feature presentation. And the Old Covenant is like the trailer of the movie that shows you bits and pieces. It gives you hints. It gives you an idea what to look forward to, but doesn't show everything in detail. And that's what we see here. We're going to look at the trailer a little bit more in looking at the, the architecture and the ritual of the Old Covenant to see what they teach us about the real thing showing us that through the death of Jesus, we have received an eternal redemption. So first, let's look at the place of your redemption. Where does all this happen? The author describes the tabernacle that Moses was called to build. In verse 2, he says, A tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. And I think Randy found me a, an image or an illustration for the slides that, that helps Show it a little bit. Hey, there it is. Okay, it's not on my screen in the back, so I was very confused. So we have like this, this outer area that, that has um, a lampstand, a menorah, a, a, a table with a bread of the presence and an altar for, for sacrifice. And, and if you were an everyday Jewish person, you were not allowed to enter into that area. 
That was the holy place. And only the priests were allowed in there when they were performing their ritual functions. And even then, they had to be washed and cleansed and cleaned. And there were all these rules listed in Scripture about what they could not have done in the past week and what they had to do to prepare. But it was the holy place that they entered. But within that, there's an even more holy place. So go on to the, the next verse, verses 3 through 5. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or some translations, the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn to hold the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he, he recognizes, like, there's so much I could say about this, but I just don't have time to go into detail, to which the people said, Amen. But if I go back to the picture, it actually is really neat. Because only the high priest could go past the curtain and into this most holy place. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. And, and I just watched with my son for the first time, for him, not for, first for me, Raiders of the Lost Ark and that image of the golden covered Ark with the cherubim on top of it. And inside the Ark, he lists the three things. There's the jar of manna to remind the people that the Lord had miraculously provided for all those years in the desert. And the staff of Aaron that budded, another story from Numbers uh, where God demonstrated the authority of Moses and Aaron and, and rejected the, the attempts by others to overthrow the leaders that God had chosen. And then lastly, the, the tablets of, of the covenant, the Ten Commandments that God gave. They were all there in the ark, and once a year the high priest would go in and make offering for the sins of the people. So, so why does any of this matter to us, though? This is, this is passing away. This is gone. Well, as we saw last week in Hebrews 8, 5, the earthly place of worship is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. God designed that structure that you just saw very intentionally. Not just like, hey, I think this would be a kind of a cool setup, a cool way to lay things out. It was very intentional to show and to teach his people what it means to approach the presence of God. God is holy and we are not. And so we cannot just choose to go into the presence of God. And in fact, there's stories in the, New, in the Old Testament of people who were struck down because they did not approach God in the way and manner that he had prescribed. They went casually into the presence of God and for their sin, they were struck down. The only way that God's people can enter his presence is as the high priest would do once a year with blood. The blood of a perfect sacrifice. That's the only way our connection to God is possible. So that's one reason it's important because it, it shadows, it, it gives us a look at how it is to approach a holy God. You can't just walk in. But more importantly, it matters because the author is explaining a valuable truth about your salvation. Because his point is that when Jesus comes to do the work that he did, it didn't take place in an earthly temple that was a copy or a shadow. We looked at that last week. Verse 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the more perfect tent, one not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not the earthly one that's a shadow or a copy, but the holy place, the, the presence of God, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's sharing with us the good news that Jesus went to the place where healing had to happen. And he made it happen. Everything that came before, every 
sacrifice from the animal skin that was sacrificed in order to cover up, cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness and shame in the garden to the priestly sacrifice that was offered the very morning of Christ's crucifixion. Every one of those sacrifices could only point to the need for a deeper healing. They weren't going to where the wound really was, the presence of God. They could only mimic the salvation that was going to happen. I was thinking about this and it, it reminded me of a time, and some of you have journeyed with me on this since I've lived here. Uh, I've, my dryer just keeps breaking. And the first time it happened, rather than you know just replace it or call in a repair person to, and spend who knows how many hundreds of dollars, when who knows, maybe it's like some little thing that I could, in all my limited knowledge, replace. And so I did what any person my generation does. I went to YouTube. And I searched the model number of my dryer and the problem I was having. And lo and behold, there are people explaining how you test and figure out what the real problem is. And then once you diagnose it, step-by-step -step video instructions how to fix it. Take out this screw, set this to the side, get this tool, do this, order this part, put this part in here, connect it this way, so that a, a complete technological dummy like myself who can barely get a toaster to work right. I was able to follow the steps to the detail, watching somebody working on a dryer exactly like mine. And I was able to follow their instructions and make my dryer work. Okay, so what, why am I talking about this? Because watching that video in its entirety did not fix anything. I had to go to the dryer and actually make it happen. What the video was for was to show me this is what it's going to look like when you fix the broken thing. This is the steps that need to be taken, and this is how it's gonna happen. But the video itself, I wish it could have, but it didn't. The video itself could not fix anything. Healing still had to be brought to the broken situation. And that's what's happening in the earthly temple. The whole system that God gave to Israel was just that. It was a demonstration. It was a video showing you, here's what it's gonna look like, when redemption actually takes place. A priest will take the blood of a perfect sacrifice past the veil and into the presence of God and bring about forgiveness of sin. That's what's going to happen. And when it happened in the temple, sins weren't forgiven. They were just showing what it would be when the high priest Jesus went into the holy place, the real one, not the imitation, not the shadow. The real priest takes the real sacrifice into the real place. He secures real salvation. What that means for us today, for me and you, is that redemption has fully been accomplished. The price has already been paid to free you from the consequences of your sinful rebellion against God. There is nothing then that you need to do to add to it. There is nothing that you can do to add to it. To make yourself more forgiven. To make yourself more loved. Or to make yourself more secure in the presence of God. Everything that needs to be done has already taken place in the holy place. Jesus has gone forward to where healing needed to happen. He made it happen there. And it says he secured an eternal redemption. Secure means you have it. It is as good as yours, even if you're not there yet. 
Just this past week, I was trying to secure a hotel room for a conference I'll be attending this summer for our denomination. And for five years, I've gone to this conference and always tried to get in early enough to get a room in the hotel where the conference takes place and not have to be like a mile or two down the road and travel back and forth every time we have a meeting. And I've always been too late to get it. And this year, I tried to do it. And online, it said there weren't any rooms available. But I said, my wife, who, who will not settle for that answer, said, call them. Call the hotel. So I called them, and I got somebody very helpful, and, and he walked me through the process, and he said, hey, if, you can, if you're willing to take this kind of room, I can do it. And I said, I will absolutely take that kind of room. And, and I, I'm starting to tremble with excitement as he says, okay, let me finish. You know, I'm hearing the computer clicking. He says, are you ready for your confirmation number? And I'm just like, yes. You know, my wife saw me just like, when there's a confirmation number, it's secured. You have it. When you get there, there's nobody that can take that room away from you because it is confirmed. And that's what Jesus did. He gives us a confirmation number. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as an assurance that the redemption that you need has already been given to you. Nothing can take it away. That's what we learn from the place of your redemption, that Jesus went into where healing had to happen and fully accomplished it, and nothing can undo that. We're not waiting. We're not waiting for redemption to take place. He already went in and already did it. But the next thing we see is not just the place where it happened, but the process by which it happened, the process of your redemption. In verse 1, the author not only referred to earthly places of holiness, but also for regulations for worship. God didn't just design a temple for show. He, he also prescribed activity that would take place in that temple. He gave them regulations for worship, which is a reminder that we can't just choose how we want to worship God. The reason is the way that God prescribes worship very clearly and very intentionally mimicked and, and imitated and pointed to the way that salvation would take place. And so the people had to be very careful to follow the pattern that was given, not only for the place of their worship, but also for the process by which they worshiped God. Verses 6 through 7, he said, The preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Two things I want to point out here. One, just as an aside, notice that those verses are all written in the present tense. The present tense. The author is describing something that is still going on. The Jewish community in Jerusalem, in the day that, this, that these words were being written, the author of Hebrews was writing, they were still worshiping in that way. And why does that matter? For those that were in our Sunday school class last fall, in what year was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Thank you so much. I love it. Both services, people knew the answer. 70 A.D. In the year 70, the temple was destroyed and, and the work of the priests in the temple ceased. And so if this was being written 90 years, 100 years, even 50 years after the, the resurrection of Christ, the author would have said the priests used to do this. The high priest used to do this. But no, 
He speaks as if it's still going on because this was written to the first generation of Christians after the resurrection of Christ. We have the testimony of Scripture from an early, early date to the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. But that's a bit of an aside. The main point is he's describing the ritual worship of the Old Covenant, which was a daily process of sacrifices and washings and then all leading up to one big moment once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest would go behind the curtain into the most holy place with a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. But why did that sacrifice need to happen? Why this process? Why did he have to make a sacrifice to go into the presence of God? It's because all other activity fails to solve our problem. If a solution for our sin doesn't remove our sin, then it doesn't go deep enough to solve our problem. Look at verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement of the priests and the worship and the washings and everything, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Uh, for those who are salivating at that word reformation, it, uh, it's not obviously not talking about the Protestant Reformation. It's talking about the word means to, to put things straight, to make things in order the way they're supposed to be, to make things right, which is what the author of Hebrews is saying God did through Christ. He took all things and made them the way they were intended to be. So those regulations were in place until the time of Christ. But the problem with them is that they could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They just are external. And this is true of everything we do to make ourselves better, to make ourselves more acceptable or to feel less guilty or to feel right. We make rules. We make habits. We remove things from our life that are inappropriate. And we think that in doing so, we're going to somehow get deep enough to make lasting change. We saw earlier as uh, last year when we were looking in Colossians, we saw in chapter two these words, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But rules and behaviors like that are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can clean up the outside all you want. You can remove every bad habit from your life to make your behavior nicer, but they can't get to the root of the problem. Our sin remains. The history of it and the power of it remain. And therefore, our guilt remains. And the result, even if we do it perfectly, the result is that something is clean on the outside, but still rotten on the inside. Jesus spoke of this in speaking to the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, he said, You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleannesses. Reminded me of a, a fellow I knew once overseas who loved, every time I visited with him, loved to show me his car. And he would, it was always, I mean, it was a beautiful sports car, clean, shiny, brightly colored, everything was just great about it. And his, you know, his wife said, yeah, he spends hours a week cleaning that thing, buffing it, waxing it, everything. And finally I said, hey man, when are you going to take me for a ride in this thing? I would love to go for a ride. He said, oh, it doesn't have an engine. <laughs> okay 
So you have a beautiful sports car that goes nowhere because the engine doesn't work. And we do that, don't we? We get the cleanest, shiniest outside by changing our habits, changing our rules, but the inside doesn't change. And that's the problem with even the temple worship that God prescribed. It would clean the outside and make ritual purity, but would not make purity of heart, purity of conscience. So how do we fix our real problem? Well, that's what the priest's sacrifice pointed to. The promise or the process of redemption shows us that our sin that keeps us from God can only be solved by the death of the sinner. In Ezekiel 18, the Lord does not say, the soul that sins more than other people will die. He does not say, the soul who sins more than they don't sin shall die. He does not say, the soul who sins but doesn't feel bad about it later will die. He says, the soul who sins shall die. That's our circumstance because God is just and you want Him to be just. When you see problems in the world and you want them to be made right, when you see people being hurt and you want wrongdoers judged, you want God to be just. And He is. He's not only just, but He is not less than just. But if we're to have any hope then God needs to be more than just. And thank God He is. In Exodus 34, in revealing His character, listen to the two uh, aspects of God's character He reveals. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God demands that sin be punished and He says the soul that sins shall die, but the heartbeat of God is to forgive and to be merciful. Look at 2 Samuel 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life. And He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. We all must die. God is just the soul that sins shall die, but God devises means so that the one who is cast out will not remain banished, but will be brought back. The process of redemption needs to satisfy the justice of God, whereby sin is met with death, but also the heartbeat of mercy in God, whereby those who are cast away and under condemnation are brought back to Him without compromising His holiness and His justice. So the sacrifice of the priest in the most holy place shows us that God will accept a perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners. And only in that way can His people enter His presence again. Verses 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly one, He entered once for all into the holy places, the actual presence of God, not the earthly imitation, not by means of blood and goats and calves, those things that were meant to point to Him, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. God punishes sin with death because He is just. But God punished our sin with the death of Jesus because He is merciful. 
and He is gracious. So the place of our redemption and the process of our redemption are reflected in the temple to show us the greater reality that would come in Jesus. And lastly, we see the purpose of that redemption. Why did God save us? What is He hoping to accomplish in saving us. And for many people, our instinctive reaction that we were raised with, if you were raised in the church, and you know, very often your thought is, well, God saves us so that we can go to heaven when we die, which is not wrong, but is only a small part of the story. Listen to verses 13 through 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, all this ritual stuff that God commanded, if they sanctify, if they make clean the purification of the flesh, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, there's two things we see here about the purpose of our redemption that result from what Jesus did. First, a pure conscience. A pure conscience is more than forgiveness, isn't it? You can forgive someone for the wrongs that they do, and yet they remain guilty and ought to have a guilty conscience for the wrongs, even though they're forgiven. The forgiveness does not take away the guilt. The guilt is still there. Having a clean, purified conscience means not only are sins forgiven, but they are removed. They are taken away. The former way of the rituals and the sacrifices of the temple could only clean and purify the outside. And if followed perfectly and the law was obeyed perfectly, it would result in changed behavior. But God is not just trying to change your behavior. He's trying to change our hearts. He wants obedience and behavior and good works to not be a fearful act of trying to earn salvation, but rather for our obedience to be a joyful expression of the removal of sin. I knew someone once who was going through physical therapy for a shoulder imagery. And uh, in later stages of that therapy, he was required to take this uh, like beanbag ball and every day he was to throw it at a certain spot in the wall. Like pitching a ball, basically. The same motion. And the, and the therapist had worked very carefully to make sure he was doing it just the right way and he had to repeat that over and over. And I was at his house as he was doing it once. And I asked, you know, are you enjoying pitching the ball? And he said, I hate it. I hate it. I'm only doing this so I get better. I'm only doing this because I have to do this if my arm's going to start working the right way again. Now compare that to somebody whose shoulder is in working order and who loves throwing the ball, who loves pitching a game. Identical motions, identical behavior, doing the exact same thing, but what's going on in the heart? What's going on in the heart is completely different. To one, that motion is a burden. To the other, it's a delight and a joy. It's the difference in our obedience between saying, I'm going to forgive what you did to me because I have to. Versus, I have been changed by the grace of God. And I want to share that grace with you. I want you to experience that same grace and I forgive you on that basis. Or saying, I'm going to give to the poor and the needy because I'm embarrassed not to. Versus, God has met all my needs and promises that I will lack nothing. and It is my privilege and my delight to help those who, who are in need. You know, as we sang earlier, 
His commandments then become their happy choice. This is what happens with a purified conscience. You're no longer working to be delivered. You're working from a position of deliverance. You're not working and, and, and fearful and, and regretful and, and trying to earn the pleasure of God. You are moving from a position of forgiveness and grace and the pleasure of God outward in obedience. A clean conscience changes the heart behind our actions. But there's another phrase in verse 14. The blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God's purpose in saving us is not just to populate heaven or to keep us from being bad people. God saves us so that we will be able to serve Him. That's always been His plan for His people. Deliverance has a purpose. Grace has a goal. When God sought to deliver His people from the slavery to the Egyptians in Exodus 8, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people, let my people go. And that's, that's the line we remember. Maybe you just hear Charlton Heston saying, Let my people go. <laughs> There's more to it than that. That's half the sentence, ladies and gentlemen. Look at how verse 1 goes. Let my people go that they may serve me. And this bothers me, this bugs me about every movie rendition of the, the Exodus narrative. It's always about these people are enslaved, they should be liberated. It's all about they just need to be free from slavery. Absolutely true. But the goal of their deliverance in the Exodus account is service. That they will then be freed to serve God. Zechariah, the father of John the baptizer, says this same thing when he's uh, finally freed from his being mute after John was born. And he, he sings this song to declare his joy and to announce the coming of the Messiah that, that John will herald. Uh, I'm going to read the, most of the song of Zechariah here. It's a few verses. Bear with me and listen for this theme. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people as, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. Listen to all that language of deliverance. But Zechariah goes on to say deliverance has a purpose. He saved us. Why? To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Deliverance has a purpose. Grace has a goal. And for us today, it is the same under Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one shall boast. But why did this happen? It's because you're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The deliverance that we have in Jesus has a purpose. The cleansing, the purity, the sacrifice in the temple had a purpose. It was to prepare His people for service. Concluding story that I thought of as I was meditating on these things was from... 
you know, for those that get impatient with my movie stories, this, I haven't done a movie in a while, okay? So, <laughs> Captain America, the first Avenger. The, it tells a story of Captain America as he first becomes a superhero during World War II. And there's this whole extended storyline where a whole group of, uh, of allies soldiers have been captured and they're being imprisoned by the Germans and their allies. And so you have this big group of POWs and Captain America goes in to rescue them. And he does. He succeeds. He, he marches through the gates, you know, tears out all the obstacles and, and, and liberates all these captives, these prisoners. And uh, what he does not do at that point is hurry them all onto a covered truck and get them away to safety. Get out of here. You're, you're free. You're delivered. You know, that's how we picture deliverance. Like, let's get you out of danger. But what he does instead is he opens up their cages and he arms them. He gives them weapons and sends them into the fray. And they take over the camp and they wipe out the enemies there, which they were themselves very eager and excited to do. None of them were saying, oh, can you just let me go lie down and get a warm meal and then I'll come back and help? No, they were itching for a fight. They were ready. They wanted to be engaged, to be involved. And I mention that because children of God, a, a Christian faith that has as its goal idleness, whose vision for you is that you will be blessed and uninvolved, sitting back and waiting until the day that God finishes up whatever He's doing in the world. That is not a compelling vision of the Christian faith and of the kingdom of God. And I don't believe it appeals to your heart. Thank God that that's not what He has designed for you because it's not what He's designed you for. The work of Jesus in going into the most holy place and securing your redemption, fully accomplishing the salvation that you needed by offering Himself to satisfy the justice of God and the mercy of God, it cleansed you, it purified you, it removes your sin, it delivers you with a purpose. And that purpose is to send you into a dying world in need of redemption, that you would be an agent, a minister, a voice, speaking God's salvation into that world participating in His work of reconciling all things to Himself in Christ, carrying the message of salvation, applying the good news to those who are hurting and in need and affected by sin, working against the power of evil wherever we encounter it in the world. And the reason that it accomplishes that is because it, what He did in the holy place secured your redemption so that you no longer need to exert all your labor, all your effort, all your energy trying to free yourself. Those soldiers in the cages in that movie, they were wanting to break themselves out. Their efforts were being spent trying to liberate themselves. That's all they could worry about. And when you're enslaved, when you are imprisoned, that's all you can do is try to get out. But once you've been delivered, you don't have to work on getting out anymore. And you are free to do what you were made to do, what you were called to do, and what Christ equips you to do. You don't need to fight for your own deliverance anymore. You don't need to secure your redemption. You are redeemed. That is fully accomplished in Christ in the most holy place. And now, delivered from the hands of your enemy, you can serve the Lord without fear in holiness and in righteousness the rest of your days. Let us pray with thankful hearts that we have such a salvation that doesn't just get us out of harm's way, but equips us and sends us 
into the good work that we want to be engaged in. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus who fully accomplished all that we needed him to accomplish, who went in to the place where healing needed to happen, and he brought healing, who did so with a sacrifice that fully satisfied the demands of justice and the heart of mercy, and who delivers us so thoroughly that we are enabled and equipped and encouraged to participate in the work that he does. We thank you for that salvation and pray that we would be faithful in living it out in the world. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.